News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you have been traveling lately, you know that Canadian airports have been very busy. Uh, airlines and airports in this country claimed top spots when it comes to flight delays this past weekend, notching uh, more than uh, out uh, more than uh, just about every other airport in the world. Certainly up there in the top. Air Canada ranking number one in delays on Saturday and Sunday as two thirds of its flights, seven hundred seventeen trips in total, took off late, and that is all according to the tracking service Flight Aware. Joining us now is Mark Weber, President of the Customs and Immigrations Union. Mark, thank you so much for taking some time uh, to be with us this morning. No, thank you for having me. I, I know you talked to a, a Commons Committee about this as well, and you've been looking at what's happening. What is it in your mind, or what is it that's causing these huge delays at this point? So for us who deal with inbound coming out of Canada, that's what Customs and Immigration does. Uh, it's really two problems. Primarily, uh, it's a lack of staff. We've watched our numbers slowly dwindle over the last few years, and that includes pre-pandemic. And we did see significant lineups in, in 2019, 2018, before you know COVID hit, when there was still full travel. Uh, and then you add on to that the Arrive Can app. Uh, it's kind of a perfect storm to cause big delays. And what specifically, how is the ArriveCan app kind of muddling this up or or causing these delays? It's really a matter of people not having completed it when they get to the border. Some don't even know that they had to. Uh, They don't even have the app downloaded. Others have not filled it out properly or are not able to fill it out properly. We would guess it's somewhere close to about a quarter of travelers who, who don't have it completed when they arrive. So, of course, that creates uh, the the traffic jams that you see at the airport. I read, too, that part of your testimony was that that customs agents or or members of your union, in addition to their job, which is the job they got hired for, they've also become IT consultants or IT experts. Can you talk a little bit about how much that is happening with, with union members trying to help people with this technology? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, we have significantly reduced numbers working at the front line, and the, the way the Arrive Can app is working with so many people not having it completed, all of our time has spent helping people complete the app because it's mandatory for that to be completed before they're allowed in the country. And the knock-on effect of that is that the, the actual, our normal job that we're there for, keeping the border safe, keeping things out of Canada that we we'll want to get into Canada, that kind of thing, we're really not dedicating much to that at all. All their time is spent on getting that app completed. Is it supposed to be filled out, though, as far as if somebody's coming back into Canada or entering Canada, is there not supposed to be some check made before they get on the airplane uh, from wherever they're coming from to that that app is filled out and that information is there before they board the plane so it is there when they arrive? No, they're, they're arriving at the airport without it filled out. Uh, I think the situation is even a little bit more dire at land borders. They're the lineups and the delays, and that's about cars, right, which take up a lot more space. So you see lineups sometimes a kilometer or more long. 
And and so when we look at what we saw again this weekend as well with the, the uh, airlines, Air Canada, as we mentioned, and uh, Air, Canadian Airlines kind of taking those top spots in cancelled flights and delayed flights, mm-hmm. how much of it is, like you mentioned, staffing or, and, and arrive can, or, or I guess what could be done? What would be the first thing you would like to see done uh, trying to fix this backlog or fix these bottlenecks? I mean, in terms of the outbound flights, we don't, that's not kind of our area, but from what I read in the media, it does sound like there's staffing issues there as well. Uh, on our side, I think we need to hire a lot more people, a couple thousand, three thousand, just to get things started to get back to the levels where we were at. The CBSA has, over the years, as they've added in new technologies, uh, automated kiosks and that, I think the idea was that they're put in and therefore you need less officers working the front line. Really, the opposite has happened. All these new technologies that they've put in uh, result in needing more officers and the process actually being slowed down. And is it an issue similar to what we're seeing in other industries in that people during the pandemic were either laid off and went and found work elsewhere or resigned and just aren't coming back to those positions? Uh, It hasn't been sudden, no. Like when we look at our numbers, they've dwindled steadily since these automated technologies have been put into the airport. So over the last nine, ten years, the numbers have slowly dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped to where they are now. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic and everyone wants to travel, it becomes really obvious the lack of uh, people that are working at the front line. And you've got to keep in mind as well the volumes that are coming through now, the volume of travelers. We're at about 70, 75% of what we were in 2019 pre-pandemic. So we're not, not about three quarters as, as busy as we would normally be. Which is in, interesting. I'm, I'm surprised by that number, only, if only because looking at some of the scenarios that played out this past weekend, I mean, even looking at Pearson Airport in Ontario, uh, the fire chief got involved saying that because of the backlog mm-hmm. with flights and people, there were too many people in the airport. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really highlights how many more people we need to get travelers through. The, the little number that we have are spending all of their time helping people complete that app. It's um, it's a pretty desperate situation. I actually flew out of Toronto to uh, Victoria a couple of days ago, and outbound was no different. Uh, it was For my flight with Air Canada, it was virtually impossible to find someone to even show you where the lineups were. It was, it was just chaos. Hmm. Uh, so do you think it would make a difference then? Obviously, staffing can't be fixed overnight. But if, like uh, some other countries that have gotten rid of, of their equivalent to the ArriveCan app, if that one piece was dropped, how big of an impact do you think would that be? Yeah, it would be quite an impact. I think it would help a lot. There would still be lineups. Um, the, the lineups would be less, though, for sure. Uh, the good part is that it if that were eliminated, I, I think we would have a little bit more time to dedicate to our actual jobs rather than just filling out the app. What do you say then to uh, Canadians or people who are listening to this and are planning tra- travel in the summer? I mean, it doesn't look like the government is close to dropping this. In fact, there's even some hints that they're looking at some way to make it permanent. Uh, what do you say then to people who are looking at this chaos at the airports and the lineups and, and hoping to travel this summer? Pack a lot of pay patients, get there very early, uh, make sure your arrive can app is completed. That does speed things up a lot. And, you know, know that the uh, the customs officer that you're going to be dealing with is likely there working a lot of hours. Uh, our employer has instituted things such as mandatory overtime, uh, elimination of vacation leaves. 
Um, they're pulling people off of specialty teams just so they have more people to work the front line. Uh, it's, it's really desperate. We have ports around Canada that are operating on almost unlimited overtime. And that was before the, the summer rush as well. So our staffing needs are, are desperate. So when you, you know, when you meet that customs officer and you finally get to the, to the place where they are, um, we understand your frustration. Uh, it's, it's well earned. We know how long you've waited and we're doing our absolute best to get you through as fast as we can. It's got to be stressful for your union members as well. Yeah, I mean, we're really worried about their mental health, physical health. Coming out of COVID, we worked throughout COVID, instituting all the public health measures. We acted as screening officers. It was it was an incredibly stressful two years. And then to come out of the two years and be told, uh, you're probably going to have to work mandatory overtime and we're not sure you're getting any summer vacation, it's, uh, it's crushing. Our people are working exhausted. All right, Mark, we'll leave it there for this morning, but I do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with Mornings with Simi show contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. I wanted to talk to you about uh, climate protesters that have glued themselves to a 200-year-old masterpiece at London's National Gallery. They are part of an environmentalist group called Just Stop Oil. Basically, what they did was they covered the painting with a modified version of a famous landscape painting, and then they stuck their hands to the frame. There's some video of it online, and you can see that the security guards Uh, awkwardly tried to get onlookers who were also shooting video of the scene uh, out of the room quickly, but it didn't really work. Like uh, a lot of people were able to shoot full videos of what was happening. And I think it's going to lead to galleries everywhere, probably even including here to start having conversations and discussions about how to diffuse protests like this quickly, because there have been others last week, Just Stop Oil uh, covered paintings in three other galleries, including a Van Gogh, which is just I'm gonna say it it's bananas and they disrupted the British F1 as well I've said this before that when um, the stop old growth protesters were declaring earlier this year that they were going to ramp up the frequency of their bridge demos I think we are going to see more climate protests here and around the world and they're going to involve unlikelier individuals the stakes are going to be higher they're going to be I think increasingly bigger stunts to gain publicity quicker and I think they'll be more disruptive than what we've seen so far. This one seemed odd, though. I mean, I I don't get, I understand why they're doing this, but protesting where we've seen here, uh, you know, bridge decks, uh, motorways and such, you can kind of see the connection to what they're trying to say. But this must be then, I'm guessing, just for publicity, because why else are they gluing themselves to artwork? Yeah, you know, if it's a 200-year-old painting, no matter what you do to it, for whatever reason, it will gain traction in terms of the media attention you'll get afterwards. And this publicity stunt brought tons of that. So it did spark what they wanted it to, which was conversation about uh, their protest about the climate. The desired result, I don't know, because a lot of people are really angry uh, that they would do this to an artwork. Last week's being a Van Gogh, I mean, that is, uh, that's 
kind of hitting territory that makes a lot of people who enjoy culture, art, history, that's going to tick them off. And when I hear people say like, okay, protest, okay, but not to our precious paintings like I just have, the protesters themselves will often respond to that argument with, there's nothing more precious than our planet. But I will say, Jill, that I'm all for, I am for protest. I'm all for legal, peaceful protest. Uh, that doesn't cause any harm to other people or to property. Um, there was actually a recent protest at a graduation ceremony at Seattle Pacific University, and the president that was shaking hands in congratulation on stage with the students was known to support uh, an anti-LGBTQ hiring policy. So in protest, the students went on stage, and before shaking his hand, they'd hand him a rainbow flag. And it was filmed by people in the audience and put online. And I thought, wow, that's effective protest. The impact was huge. The protest itself was uh, quiet, respectful. It didn't ruin any property or really you know, ruin anybody's day, make anybody late uh, for appointments that they needed to get to or anything like that. So I, to my mind, I feel like some of these protesters could get uh, a little bit more respectful about property and what they're doing. Yeah, you're right. A lot more powerful to do that than, say, glue yourself to the stage of the ceremony. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I also wanted to tell you about uh, this guy who lives in Tappan near Kamloops in BC, um, who just won the lottery. Uh, he won a million dollars. His wife was uh, checking the lottery ticket on the app, and apparently he was really shocked that he won. They play regularly. And I thought, gosh, okay, if you're a certain age, $1 million is kind of perfect because it's not going to change you. You won't lose your friends. Your family aren't going to come running asking for anything if you just say like, hey, I'm going to use this to retire, right? <laughs> but at my age, I'm like, what do I, how much do I need to like make a big life change? Because to me, $1 million is not going to move the dial much. I have children. We're going into a recession. I feel like uh, the kindergartner for sure is going to need a lot of uh, university. She's already telling me about all the degrees that she wants to get and the things she wants to do with her life. So I'm like, okay, well, that million dollars are probably just going to your education fund. How about you? <laughs> You're right. It, uh, it doesn't go as far as maybe it did in the past. Raji, we'll leave it there for this morning. Okay. That is uh, show contributor Raji. So this is Mornings with Simi. Well, we talk about housing a lot on the program. This story is a little different, though. It has to do with a new review, and this review finds that there's actually no formal criteria when contracts are awarded when it comes to housing that is linked to BC housing. So how did this even happen? Well, Urban Affairs contributor at the Globe and Mail, Frances Bula, wrote about this very topic. She joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Hey, Frances, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, this was a report released, was it last Thursday? What did you find in this? Well, it was... It, it, it was interesting. I mean, it opened by talking about how much um, BC housing has grown. Its budget is almost $2 billion now. Um, you know, five years ago, it was something like $750 million. And it now has the borrowing. It has $3 billion in borrowing power. It's a big organization. It's considered one of the largest housing developers in, in North America. And uh, what the report said... And I have to say, I've seen jazzier language in my time. But uh, once you got through sort of the accounting technicalities and so on, what it said is that there's two of the programs in particular, not all of them. Like there is a number of programs in an Indigenous housing program, a housing hub, um, various other things 
there was sort of no comment on those, but two programs in particular, the Supportive Housing Fund and the Women's uh, Transition Housing Fund, um, that there were contracts, there appeared to be contracts being given uh, where it was not clear exactly what the criteria were. There were notes on why somebody got chosen uh, uh, over, over one group over another, one project over another. And uh, in a couple of instances, the CEO, whose name is Shane Ramsey, although they didn't actually said, say that, they just said the CEO, was given authority um, to give out two contracts. And it wasn't really clear. The board didn't seem to make it clear, uh, or the executive committee or whoever, um, what criteria there were for giving them out. It was just sort of, you can do whatever you want with this. So, um, so uh, definitely some laxness. Uh, in there uh, that um, is that they said, you know, you should be worried about this because it creates a, pro, um, a, a, a perception of unfairness. And, and it's also hard to figure out what's uh, why people are getting why particular groups are getting contracts. Right. So not to suggest that there's any wrongdoing, but also perhaps not the, the, the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's that you would see in other similar types of agencies. Yeah, I mean, a bit more than dotting T's and crossing I's. Like, I think we'd all agree that if someone's dishing out tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, like, we want to know why um, a particular group or a particular uh, organization got it. Um, so it's it's more than a technicality, I would say. And did you get any sense then with this coming out in the report that anything might change? Uh, it's there's a number of recommendations in the report, and I did talk to the minister after I read through it, and he said they are going to. That's David Eby. He said they are going to act on that, and um, you know he sort of described what was going on in in somewhat more vivid terms than the report did. You know he talked about this being kind of a BC Housing for a long time was like a small startup, a very entrepreneurial organization where you know, a lot of creative um, things were done to try to get housing going. And um, it was, it's been admired. BC Housing is sort of admired across the country, but that it's a very big organization now and it has to have more solid policies in place and there have to be protocols and there has to be a perception that there's fairness. So he, that's the way he painted it. Um, Obviously there's a lot of chatter about certain things at BC Housing that I'm not going to go into here because I have no verification of any of that, but um, that's the official picture. Right. But, and I think you're kind of alluding to this and you wrote about this as well, that here we have this, this huge organization and the review looking at things like no real clear policies, no coordination uh, between BC housing and the province. And I, and I think you wrote about this as well, that uh, an inefficient system with poor uh, data management. Yeah, they had a number of criticisms of just the general organization where it just seemed like it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, we've seen this with private companies, right? They start out small, they're very nimble, they can do a lot with with little, and then they grow and all of a sudden things start to break down because it, the organization's so big and the communication between different parts of it uh, is not great. And I mean, there were just 
I didn't even get into all of it in my story, but there were a number of things like that BC housing is not very aligned with the government. Um, you know, it's not very clear that the two that BC housing has the same goals as, uh, you know, the provincial government. Um, that there's a lot of silos within the organization and different um, departments aren't talking to each other. The data doesn't transfer from one department to another. I mean, it's the same thing at the city of Vancouver. So I don't know what, what it is about data. Um, you know, so there were just a number of things uh, that they identified and, and also just they, an interesting point I didn't put in my story, but they said, BC housing largely seems to measure its success by unit count. Uh, and really, it probably needs to have something more than that, than just unit count. That's not the only measure of success. Mm, that is uh, that is interesting. Uh, Francis, we'll leave it there. Uh, I know we could, we could talk much more about this, but we'll leave it there for this morning. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for your interest. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, we were told that talks were positive, things were going well between the BC government and the BC GEU, but that all changed when those talks broke down on Monday morning, and there is now the potential for job action. Joining us to talk more about what happened is Stephanie Smith, the president of the BC GEU and chair of the Public Service Bargaining Committee. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. So what happened that caused the breakdown of talks? Well, as you mentioned, you know, we were feeling quite hopeful last week. Um, uh, we, you're probably aware, we held a, a strike vote. It was a very, very resounding, positive message from our members. Um, and before we even announced the results of that strike vote, uh, the employer had invited us back to the table. So uh, we went back to the table last week with that almost 95% in favor of job action in uh, in our pocket. Um, we received a revised wage offer and still fell short of the mandate that our members have given us, which is around cost of living adjustments and inflation protection for wages, but something we felt we could work with. And so our committee worked really, really hard, and within that sort of financial framework, we counter-proposed uh, that, uh, a proposal that did meet the mandate of our members. We met with the employer yesterday uh, with some hope, um, and basically we got a no, and we got a no with no counter, um, nothing for us to then go back and work with. And so at that point, um, we had to let the employer know that there was no point in us remaining at the table. And so when you say the mandate that you were sent with uh, with members, so if with inflation, if we look at inflation last month sitting at around 8%, were you looking for an 8% increase? Well, what we're looking at is something that at least begins to address the rising cost of living. I mean, there's lots of different ways of, um, you know, calculating what COLA is, um, whether it's a 12-month rolling average, um, you know, and it is something that members of the Legislative Assembly have afforded themselves by legislating that their wages are tied to the rates of inflation. And, you know, minimum wage is tied to rates of inflation as it should be and should have been all along. Rents are tied to rates of inflation. Pensions are tied to rates of inflation. All we're asking for is that our members' wages um, are given the same uh, consideration. 
Uh, so how far apart are, are the two sides? Because earlier I know that, that you had said that the union was looking in a range of a 5% increase per year uh, over the two years with the cost of living. But, but it sounds like then if you're also tying it to the rate of inflation, that is higher. Well, again, you know, we made some moves. Originally, our proposal was for a two-year deal. Um, we agreed to move to a three-year deal and how we would look at um, the, again, sort of the, the financial framework that was presented to us um, last week. We looked within that. We feel there is a deal there to be had, but the employer's proposal to us did not address, you know, inflation protection for wages, and that is absolutely what we've been told our members want to see in this collective agreement that's going to allow them to ratify this collective agreement. It's 33,000 people. Um, you know, these are, again, the, the folks who were all deemed essential throughout, uh, you know, the, the, the COVID crisis, which we're not finished with yet. And they know their worth, and it is getting harder and harder and harder, just like everyone else, for them to make ends meet and to stay in the jobs that that they're currently in. Uh, and when you talk about that as well, uh, do you have any concerns about public support, given that, that, yes, your union members were deemed essential, and, and that also means, though, that they kept their employment through the pandemic, they kept their jobs, their benefits, their pensions. A lot of people who are also struggling right now weren't so lucky and, and, and didn't end up so well. Are you concerned at all about public support? Well, I think, I, you know, I, I mean, it's a very good point. It was a very, very difficult time. But, you know, a lot of the programs that, that those who were impacted, and we had members whose, um, you know, we represent casino members, and their jobs were ended um, at the beginning of the pandemic. But the programs that supported people through the pandemic were administered by the members in the public service. And, and again, you know, whether it's in the broader public sector, that's what kept the lights on. That's what kept the wheels turning. That's what kept those programs available to people who live here in BC. So we know there's value in that. And, and it's the same people that we are now relying on as we are rebuilding our economy and we're coming back and we're, we're regenerating. And um, there is a massive labor shortage. I mean, we're, we're starting to see people leave these jobs because they can't afford to stay in them and live in the communities where they're needed. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Should job action go ahead, what should the public expect to see? Well, I mean, we're still in essential services uh, negotiations, different essential services from COVID. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to give away our tactics too much, but job action can take a lot of different forms. You know, it can be overtime bans. It can be working to rule, you know, doing exactly what your job description says, taking your breaks when you're supposed to. And it could mean that we will, um, you know, have to close services. Our job right now is to make sure we're talking with our members, hearing from them. Our goal is to get a collective agreement, and we're hoping that, you know, the employer will come to us with a counter and we can actually negotiate to get a deal. All right. Uh, Stephanie Smith, we will talk to you again about this, I'm sure. But thank you so much for making the time for us this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. That is Stephanie Smith, BCGEU president, also chair of the Public Service Bargaining Committee. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, if you are somebody with pets who has looked for rental living, whether it's an apartment, house, condo, what have you, you likely know how difficult it can be to find pet-friendly rentals. Well, this week, Mayor Linda Buchanan, the mayor of the city of North Vancouver, has brought forward a motion that looks at finding ways to create more pet-friendly homes and communities. And Mayor Linda Buchanan joins us now on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Uh, What was the the background? Was it that you were hearing from residents, from people about the difficulties? Because I know the city of North Van has looked kind of uh, overall at at making communities more pet friendly, but what was it that kind of sparked uh, you bringing this forward to look at rentals specifically? Uh, well, well, basically for, for, um, myself, uh, you know, the people that I've been talking to, particularly the pet owners, pets are considered part of their family. And, you know, as we see, uh, have seen over the pandemic, pet ownership has uh, increased dramatically. And uh, for our city, as we are growing, so are the number of pets uh, that we're seeing in the community. And so, for people who, uh, you know, 80% of my residents live in multifamily, with 50% of those being rentals. So it makes it very, very challenging, you know, in a very tight market as that, that already exists for people to be able to find rentals that allow for pets. So, you know, this is a second part of, uh, you mentioned, we, we're doing a dog strategy, which was something I put forth to, to council as well that passed unanimously. Um, earlier, and so this was coming. The actions were coming back for that. So this was an addition that I added. That we start to explore how is it that we can allow people within rental buildings to to be able to live there with their pets. And are you talking then specifically rental buildings that uh, are, are kind of market rentals, or are you also talking about say basement suites, or talking about more of the the so called you know mom and pop rental organizations? Well, I think those are the things that we've asked our staff to explore. So really what we're, you know, first of all, we're, we're looking at purpose-built rental. Um, so having our staff really, you know, work with the de- development community, community around what can they be putting into to their buildings that are going, are going to be able to support being pet-friendly. Um, then working with the BCSPCA and other uh, pet advocacy groups about how we can adopt more pet-friendly housing policies. So that might uh, expand into, you know, the the more um, traditional basement suites, mom and pop rentals, etc. Um, and then the other was I I sent a letter off to uh, Minister E B around looking at again the Rental uh, Tenancy um, Act and the Strata Act because one doesn't um, the Strata Act. Uh, um, supersedes the Rental Tenancy Act. So there's a lot of complexity to it. We, you know, I wish it was simpler than it, uh, than it uh, is, but you know the reality is we have many, many people who have pets and that get a lot of benefit out of their pets. We have a lot of people in our community also live alone, so the pet is extremely comforting for them. And um, as well as provide a other host of, of benefits. And so it's very, very restrictive. And so, you know, we're not the first municipality to ask for this. There's other municipalities. I know Port Moody has put something forth to UBCM for the fall. But, you know, as we look to, uh, again, rental markets across not just my city, but the region being very, very tight, 
um, the value that pets have and, you know, not only to, you know, people, but to our communities, we need to really uh, um, modernize the Tenancy Act and, you know, look at the role of stratas that really are going to support people. Because at the end of the day, it's about supporting people in our communities. And when you mentioned the Strata Act, uh, it made, made me think of uh, when we're talking about oftentimes we focus so much on, on whether pets are allowed or not allowed. Uh, I think the, the default in the Strata Act, unless a strata has made a modification to it, is one dog or one cat, which can also be an issue for people if you've got two and, and pets are very social as well. Does this also look at not only allowing pets, but relaxing the rules perhaps on the number of pets? Well, again, that's a whole piece that needs to be explored. And I think that was, you know, back, I think it was 2018, there was a a task force that was looking at, uh, you know, changes to the Rental Tenancy Act. Um, And and then they chose not to actually bring that forward as as part of modernizing that act. But, yes, stratas then have, that's another whole act that needs to be looked at. And and so I, I think... You know, that's where the conversation and what kind of pets and how big are the pets. So we're not just talking, you know, under that when we say pets, it's not necessarily, you know, traditional perhaps cats and dogs. People have, you know, a value to to other pets that they want to own. So the conversation gets a lot bigger and a little bit more complicated when we start to think of other animals that people consider to be their pets. And so I think... You know, what I'm looking for in the city is, you know, trying to make it so we can, with our, you know, pet-friendly or our dog-friendly strategy, is how can we incorporate that into the conversation we're having with uh, uh, building owners, with strata stratas, um, develop, developers as they're building their buildings, what kind of infrastructure they can put within their buildings. So, you know, I'm hoping at a provincial level, because those acts do, um, you know, guide what owners um, and stratas can do. But from my city, it's like, so how can we actually support the conversation and move that dialogue forward and look at what can we be doing at the local level, but hoping to get support from the minister in terms of him championing, you know, how we can actually modernize these acts and, and really, again, support the very people who are living in our communities, who rely and really, you know, again, consider these uh, animals as part of their family and and need homes. And, you know, one of the, the key challenges as we see a growing region is, you know, people, um, when we're redeveloping buildings, people, either if they're new and trying to find uh, rental or they're moving because their building's being redeveloped, you know, then we want to be able to support people to be able to move. And it's really disheartening to get phone calls and letters in my office of people who are having to move, but can't find a building that accepts um, them and their pet. And, you know, that is not something that, you know, we don't want people to have to be separated. It's the same as, you know, I know we have them. We have buildings that don't allow, you know, don't allow children um, or they're 55 plus and no children. And, you know, those are not decisions we want people to have to be making. <laughs> Nobody's going to tell a parent you, you need to leave your child behind. Um, so, you know, we need to modernize. We need to really look at the realities of, of housing today, what we're trying to do in cities to deliver the kind of housing that people need and housing for people with pets 
is absolutely something that we need to change. And and Mayor, just uh, one other uh, quick question. You talk about this being on the local level. Is this something that the city of North Van can go and do on its own, do you think? Or does it need other cities, municipalities and uh, and cooperation with the province? Well, I'd say that, you know, the reality is uh, the best would be we need uh, cooperation from the province. We need a change to those acts. And I think the fact that, you know, Port Moody's put it forward uh, to UBCM is, is a good signal that this isn't, you know, this is an issue that's been talked about for a long time. I remember talking about this, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and we're now in a market that's much, much tighter um, for, for rental. And so, you know, it's better if it's done at the provincial level and then we can standardize it across the province because the reality is people do move from one municipality to the other. Um, but I'm going to, you know, so I'm going to be advocating for that and, and working towards that. In the meantime, I want to see what our city can do in terms of, again, working with the development community around, you know, the, you know right out of the gate as we're talking about redevelopment or new buildings, um, and, and talking to Strata owners about where can you flex a little bit on this, um, because they do have uh, some authority over that, as do property owners. All right. So we'll, do, so we'll do what we can, but obviously the best is at a, at a provincial standardized uh, um, level. All right. Uh, Mayor, we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Joe. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here is something you probably don't think about every day, but it makes sense when we have medical breakthroughs and medical research. And at UBC, the medical program relies in part on people who sign up to have their bodies donated to research and education after they die. But that program is experiencing a shortage of donations since the pandemic started. And joining us to talk more about this and why this is a big deal for UBC is show contributor. Raji Sohal. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. Yeah, they're getting about half as many donations as they used to. And body donations were down due to factors related to COVID because people were avoiding, at, for a great part of the pandemic, uh, all and any interactions for a period of time. But they never quite recovered with donation numbers after the pandemic either. And so the UBC program that relies on those donations to educate the next generation of doctors is experiencing this shortage and they're having to make up for it. <clears throat> and in order to set up this uh, donation, basically one has to uh, fill, send in some forms uh, to UBC, to this body program. They have to uh, notify the right people, next of kin, physician, family, all of that. And that has to obviously uh, be done way in advance of whenever that person passes and then their body gets donated to this uh, program that has such an impact uh, on people who are learning about the body, about anatomy, surgeons, that kind of thing. I talked to the man responsible for heading the body donor program at UBC. His name's Dr. Ed Moore. He's a professor in cellular and physiological sciences at UBC. And I asked him who signs up their body for it to be uh, worked upon and and for it to uh, teach students after that person has died. Many people will say that what they wanted to do was they wanted to give back to society in some way. They wanted to give back for the kindness that they had received over the years, or they wanted to make a difference and give something to the future. And this was a way that they could do it in a meaningful manner. And it meant so much to them and often to their loved ones, whom I've heard speak as well. For the most part, 
Donors are used for education, for educating students in anatomy. And these are students who are studying medicine, dentistry, physical and occupational therapy, midwifery, and biomedical engineering, among others. We have about 1,000 students a year who will come through the anatomy lab. But that's not all. We have individuals who come to do research in various areas of the body and biomedical engineers who will come in with surgeons to practice implanting a a device somewhere to see how that device will work and the best way of implanting it. We will have surgeons who will come into the, the anatomy lab to learn new procedures and surgical residents to learn new procedures, to try new things. Or if they have a particularly difficult patient, for example, then they may come into the anatomy lab to try a different approach before taking it into the operating theater. What does dealing with an actual human body provide that the textbooks cannot provide or virtual and 3D modeling cannot provide? If you're a surgeon, there is nothing that can replace the human body. If you are a student and you're coming to study anatomy, one of the things that you will do is you will walk into that laboratory for the very first time and you will be told, this is your patient. This is your very first patient. You will treat this individual with all of the respect that you would a living human being. You will provide this patient with the best that you can. That in itself is transformative. You will see anatomical differences between one person and the next. For example, the heart lies at a different angle in in different people. Most don't know that. You will see differences in the way the coronary arteries are distributed in different people. And these anatomical differences are not something that you'll get from a textbook. In, In the donor's You will see artificial knees. You will see hip replacements. You will see stents in the coronary arteries. You will see people who have valves. So you will see not only the the normal anatomy and anatomical differences between people, but you will see how their lives have been improved by various surgical or or, uh, uh, interventional procedures to maintain their health over the years. None of that is possible through a textbook. None of it. That was Dr. Ed Moore, uh, who heads the body program at UBC, talking about the importance of working on cadavers. Jill, I remember when my sister is an obstetrician, and I remember when she was in medical school, she was a med student. And the first day that she worked with a cadaver, for her, the way she described it, it was like being at the altar. Like she had such respect for this uh, body, for the person and their family, for having made the donation. And it blew her mind. And she said that was what made her decide even to specialize was to work with an actual body. So you can imagine that at UBC, without enough uh, donated bodies at this point, it's uh, become a challenge for them to uh, inspire and motivate the next generation of of surgeons. So right now, they've been forced actually to move into a hybrid model because they don't have enough donated bodies. Uh, Here is Dr. Edmore again. In a textbook or other videos or in a simulation, You may see parts of a body, but you don't see the whole body. And one of the things that we teach is respect. You don't want the staff and you don't want the students thinking of the body as a collection of parts. You want them to see the person that you get from having your first patient in front of you. You can't ever get that from a textbook or anywhere else. Do you ever think about that first time that you dealt with a cadaver in university? Do you remember that experience? Do you know, I didn't have the opportunity to study anatomy that way. Uh, When I studied anatomy as an undergraduate and even as a graduate student, it was through a textbook. 
And it wasn't until I became head of the department that I got to go into the laboratory and see extensively what that laboratory had to offer. So then given that that was the case for you, what do you witness students go through when when they're learning from a human body for the first time? After they've been told to treat the body with great respect, and they've been told that this is your first patient, they learn how to hold a scalpel for the very first time. And they learn how to properly dissect, which is what surgeons do when they perform their surgeries. And it is an amazing thing to watch students learn how to do that. And in fact, there is some evidence in the literature, the educational literature, that uh, students who study anatomy using donors are more likely to go into surgical residency programs than those who don't. Well, that is really interesting. And Raji, something we don't, I think, think about all that often until you hear a story like that, or you hear what's happening with the decline in donations and the impacts that that's having. Yeah, something you don't think about on a daily basis, for sure. But when you listen to Ed Moore there talking about the impact of uh, body donation, then you think, um, well, at least it did make me think, Jill, um, wow, this is something that could really help uh, people down the line and in the future. You know, I you got his answer there about why people do donate. And I asked him why people don't donate, which is a considerable amount of people, right? <laughs> Obviously, the majority. And he said uh, he doesn't know. He can't extrapolate on that. Um, and I know that the reasons are so varied why people don't. Uh, but certainly the case uh, is to be made here of of why it's so extremely helpful and meaningful, a meaningful way to contribute. And that you just hearing there that how much these, the program and the doctors and the educators as well um, appreciate and respect that donation and how that generosity is received, I think bodes well. Yeah, and interesting, because often we too, we, we also talk about organ donation and the, the difference between the number of people who say they're completely in favor of it compared to the number of people who are signed up. But I would think too, maybe something like this, again, it's something that people don't think about and don't even know that it's an option. Yeah, so he told me that uh, body donations were down significantly at uh, universities that accepted them across North America, but the UBC program is unique in BC for accepting um, full body donations. And so uh, it might, part of it might be just uh, awareness. I think a lot of people aren't aware that this even exists as a program. Um, and of course, everyone is uh, welcome to read more about it online. Uh, you can check out the body program site uh, from UBC, and um, you can get more information there. All right, Raji, sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. So let's take a look at what's happening as far as river levels and any potential flooding in this province as we prepare for some warmer temperatures in the next few days. Joining us now is Jonathan Boyd, hydrologist with the River Forecast Centre. Jonathan Boyd, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, good morning, Jill. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. Well, let's take a look at the Fraser Valley, uh, or, sorry, Fraser River at this point. We know uh, a high stream flow advisory has been issued, but it doesn't look like, like uh, major flooding is expected, at least not at this point. Not at this point, no. And uh, maybe it's kind of a, a best case scenario so far, considering the, the cold April and May that we had. At the end of May and early June, there was extreme risk for potential flooding if uh, kind of the worst case situation happened for 
weather. And uh, the worst case would be extreme heat for maybe seven to 10 days, followed by heavy rain. And we've kind of just had a little bit of a mix of everything and, and nothing's really sustained. But uh, uh, the Fraser River at Mission has uh, gotten to its highest level just yesterday at 5.87 meters. So, so it is very high right now. And uh, as I said, it's, it's the highest of the season. And are you then looking or seeing kind of what happens in the next few days or as we get into perhaps warmer weather and if that level goes up? It's unlikely that warmer weather is going to push flows higher now. We're getting to a point where the, the snowpack is dwindling pretty pretty well throughout the province. It's just the high elevations, and there just isn't enough snow, I think, to push levels higher. The real risk in the immediate future, maybe the next two weeks, would be heavy rainfall, and um, especially with rivers being at their highest level. And, and that's really why Mission hit the highest level yesterday. Was It was a combination of uh, the warmest weather of the year uh, two weekends ago, June 25th, 26th, melting the snowpack in the interior. It takes a while for that snow to, to make its way down as, uh, as water in the river systems. Then there was rain midweek in the upper Fraser. And then finally, as all that water was coming down, there was rain on the south coast on Sunday. And, and we had just that local influence uh, pushing flows up a little bit higher. But uh, as I said, it might, as we look back maybe uh, in a month or two at, at this past season, it might be maybe a best case scenario where flows got high. They've been pretty high since early June on the Fraser River and under a high stream flow advisory. But uh, essentially, it's like COVID where we want to flatten the curve of the peaks. Of course, we have no control over that, but uh, we don't want a flashy high flow. And instead, what what is better is a sustained um, moderately high flow. That makes sense, too. And yeah, you mentioned the weekend. I think a lot of people were, did a bit of a double take because Saturday was so warm and beautiful and then waking up Sunday to uh, what turned into a pretty heavy rainfall. Oh, yeah. I felt like summer might have already been over and we're <laughs> heading back into fall already. Uh, what are you looking for then, uh, looking at the Fraser then? Are there other rivers in BC that you're also keeping a watch on as far as those levels? Yeah, it's pretty well the entire southern portion of the province, uh, essentially from Prince George south and, and in the interior. And the reason there is just because the delay of the snowmelt, uh, it was so cold again in, in April and May that we are about maybe four to six weeks behind in terms of our, our river peaks. So some of the rivers maybe in the upper Columbia that typically peak in late June or early July still have a ways to go. And uh, it, the, the real risk is that the flows are so high already that if we have heavy rainfall events, and, and we're seeing even just moderate rainfall events having kind of localized impacts, but the risk is if there is some major organized storm system. And an example of that would be in 2013 and, and what happened in Calgary in late June of that year, where it was just a, a major rain event that occurred. So if, if something like that were to occur within the interior, it, it would put areas at risk. And that's uh, Prince George, Quinell, uh, Kamloops, uh, areas in Kelowna, Mission Creek, the Kootenai. So just the, the sustained high flows are a concern, but it, it would take a, a major weather event that uh, I think all of our, our meteorologists would be uh, raising the alarm for if, uh, if that were to occur.
Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, so the, it sounds like the message then, as we've uh, talked about in previous years, also is is be ready for this. But again, <clears throat> it would take that major, major event. I know we've seen some some low level flooding in some areas, uh, Langley, uh, New Westminster. And, and is that kind of typical for this time of year? Yeah, especially with this type of uh, level of the the. Fraser River. I know that Keyside Park in New Westminster, the, the wooden boardwalk was closed down. And part of that was that the, the river was rising. And then there's that uncertainty in terms of the rainfall on Sunday. And uh, say if we got rain similar to our fall storms, you, you could have extreme flashy responses for the river. It's just that the, the rainfall in June and July is a, a lot more subdued on the south coast than than in uh, compared to the uh, winter and fall rainfall events. So it, it's definitely prudent to to close things down just in case uh, uh, there there are those flashy responses. But what we saw with the data is that it got just a little bit higher. Um, but still well below any type of uh, major flood concerns for the lower Fraser. Which I think is very welcome news, given, as you just mentioned, kind of the different seasons with rainfall. And I think when we're talking about the Fraser Valley and areas, they've seen more than enough flooding in the past year and and would be very happy to have a very non-eventful season this summer. Oh, exactly. And really, I think the biggest risk going forward in the next month is, is just uh, people going out to enjoy the summertime weather. And uh, the risk is that rivers and lakes are extremely high right now and, and much higher than they've been at this period of time compared to, say, the last five or six years where we've had we've had pretty warm spring. So we get that uh, those peaks in, in rivers in April and May. And we're still seeing rivers extremely high here in July. So, um, yeah, definitely the word of caution to anyone going out to enjoy uh, uh, rivers or lakes, that uh, to be aware that uh, the rivers can be fast moving and, and extremely cold too. So there's extreme danger. Right. And do we, do we tend to maybe not think about it as as much if we're not seeing flooding and it's a, it's a nice day out and we're out enjoying the, the great outdoors or doing fishing or whatever that we, that we tend to forget about those dangers? Oh, certainly. And especially uh, areas where the, the rivers are high from snow melts, just because, as I mentioned, the, the rivers are much higher right now than, say, previous years. So when, when they do get uh, lower in July and August, then then the temperature, of course, warms up. But when they're running still high, they're they're being fed by freshly melted snow. So temperatures are, are going to be much colder. And also just how fast and powerful they can be when they're higher. All right, Jonathan Boyd, uh, good information as we head into uh, the warmer weather. And like you said, uh, hoping for not for those uh, weather events to cause major flooding. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Jill. Yeah, have a great morning.